We've been going through a series in the Gospel of John. We just finished a long journey in chapter 6. There was so much in that chapter. It took us a while to unpack all of it. And we're getting into an equally interesting chapter in chapter 7. So that's where we're going to start this week. It's going to take us a couple weeks to move through this text. We're just going to get to kind of the first part of it this morning. But as we get into John chapter 7, I encourage you to follow along. So it begins like this. It says, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. So Jesus is growing in fame. He's growing in notoriety. We saw that already last week in chapter 6 as massive crowds have gathered just to see what he's going to do next and hear what he's going to say next. But along with that fame and that notoriety comes increased opposition from the Jewish leaders, so much so that they are actively seeking a way to try to put him to death. They have determined he is enemy number one, and the only way to put an end to this new Jesus movement is to put the man Jesus to death. And so this is the level of opposition that he's facing. I just want to point something out, and we'll see it again in just a minute as we work through the text, but it talks about Jesus is aware of what's happening, and he's carefully calculating his movements. He doesn't want to go in one area because of the opposition he's going to face, and so he's staying in another area. What does that tell us about Jesus? Well, it doesn't tell us that he's afraid. That is not his motivation here. Jesus is not afraid of the opposition that he faces. He knows full well what awaits him. The fact that he will give his life over at the hands of these very men that are plotting his death. What it does tell us is is that he is very much in control of his ministry on earth. He is here to do one thing, and that was to carry out the will of the Father. And so anyone who is not the Father is not going to manipulate him. We talked about that last week. He will not be manipulated. He will not be coerced. He will not be intimidated. He is going to do things the way that he wants to do them on his Father's timeline. And so he is not going to certain places yet because that's not according to the plan yet. And so we're going to talk about that more in just a minute, but I wanted to point that out. So he's avoiding Judea and staying in Galilee. Remember in chapter 6 he was around the Sea of Galilee because he knows that if he puts himself in certain positions, it will move the timeline up, and that's not according to his plan. So we get into chapter, or excuse me, verse, verses 2 through 4. It says, When the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee. And go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. And this is their reasoning. This is their argument. You need to leave uh, Galilee and go to Judea. Leave the countryside, go to the big city. Why? Because there's more crowds available in the big city. If you want to grow in your fame, you got to go where the people are. And so they say no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. And it shows a little bit about their misunderstanding of exactly what Jesus purpose was, is Jesus' main purpose in his ministry to become a public figure? No, he's not seeking after fame and notoriety. He came to do the will of the Father. We'll unpack that in just a minute. But this is a reasoning. Look, if you want to become famous, you've got to go where the people are. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. So two things we need to talk about just in these few verses right now. The first is the timeline here, the fact that this is all taking place during the Feast or of Tabernacles, or what we call the Feast of Booze, referred to in the NIV here as the Fester, Festival of Tabernacles. I will find my lips working in a minute. Give me a second. 
So just a word about the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booze, as it's referred to sometimes. What is this all about? And I want to show you just a little bit of background to this festival. So turn over to Leviticus chapter 23, if you would. This would be a good chapter to highlight because in this we find uh, a map, if you will, of all the festivals, a calendar of all the festivals that God had given to Israel Life as an Israelite revolved around these annual festivals, this up and down swing that that centered around the festivals God had given them to keep, all of them celebrating something specific about the covenant and the relationship that they had with their God and Creator. So in the midst of this chapter, we find instruction regarding the Festival of Tabernacles. And so if you look at verses 33 through 43, we're not going to read all of them, but let me start in verse 33. It says this, The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, on the 15th day of the seventh month of the Lord's festival of tabernacles, so this is late autumn, September, October, the the festival of tabernacles begins and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly, do no regular work. For seven days, present food offerings to the Lord. And on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present a food offering to the Lord. It is the closing special assembly, do no regular work. This is a festival designed to honor God and celebrate the harvest as they began to harvest at the end of the planting season. And so he had given them a period of seven days to celebrate this. He skipped down to verse 39. It says, so beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a Sabbath rest. The eighth day also a Sabbath rest. You've got one full week here punctuated at the beginning and the end by the Sabbath. In between was a celebration. On the first day, this is where it gets its name from. Why is it called tabernacles or booze or tents even? It says, on the first day you were to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. So during the celebration, you are to take leafy branches and make these temporary structures that you and your families are going to live in. For the length of this week-long celebration, you're going to live in these kind of makeshift lean-tos that you fabricated out of leafy branches. Why were they to do that? Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters, so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. It was a reminder of what God had done for Israel in their past, and it was a reminder that he will continue to sustain his people throughout the future. And so they were asked to live in these temporary shelters. It was one of three celebrations during the year where all Israelites came back to Jerusalem as pilgrims to celebrate. Regardless of where they were scattered, they came back. And so like Passover and Pentecost, you see these celebrations where everybody is gathered in the city, and the city, you can imagine, is just humming with people. It's filled to the brim with all of these people. We saw the Apostles use that to their advantage on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when they begin preaching and God starts his church on that day. So his brothers are saying, look, we know everybody's going to be in town for this celebration. If you want to become famous, go because you're going to have these crowds. Start doing these things in a bigger public environment so that people start to pay more attention to the movement that you're trying to begin. We're going to talk more about the festival next week 
and some of the things they did and the symbolism behind the festival and why Jesus said some of the things he's going to say later on in the chapter. But for now, I just want to introduce you to exactly what's going on this time of year in Israel. Now, the other thing we need to talk about is the relationship Jesus has with his brothers and exactly where they're at right now in their relationship with him and their understanding of who he is and what he's trying to accomplish. Already, just in reading the text, we see that they don't fully understand what it is that he's set about to do. But then John comes right out and just tells us bluntly in verse 5, for even his brothers did not believe in him. This gives us an opportunity to reflect more on his brothers specifically and the concept of family as Jesus introduces it to us. He invites us into a different way of thinking about family, family connections, family bonds, and even family boundaries. Look, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, and that's what we're asked to be in this gospel, right? We're invited to become followers of Jesus. If you're going to follow Jesus, that's not about showing up in a building one hour a week. It's about a change in perspective. Everything about the way that we understand the world around us and our relationship with the people around us changes when we, de- when we have determined to follow Jesus. And so I want to invite you into a conversation about that for just a few minutes this morning. Let's think about this. First of all, Jesus' immediate family, his physical earthly family. We're first introduced to them in John chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana where Jesus performs that miracle and turns all that water into wine. We talked about how Jesus' mother plays a really important role in what happens there. She's the one kind of egging him on, right, when she points out, hey, they've run out of wine. He says, what do you want me to do about it? My time has not yet come. And then she turns to the servants and says, do you remember? Do whatever he tells you to do, right? And we talked about how beautiful that whole thing is. Jesus begins his public ministry at the urging of his own mother. But what does that tell you about Mary's conviction in who her son is? She had a firm grasp on who he was because she had known from the moment that angel appeared to her how special this child was. We also know that his disciples were coming to faith in him. But here's what I want to show you. In verse 12 of John chapter 2, it says, After this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. So at times during Jesus' ministry, his brothers are traveling along with him. But what we don't yet know is where do they fit into this spectrum of belief? Are they already convinced like Mary is in what he can do and who he is? Are they coming to faith like his disciples are in this story? Where do they fit in in that spectrum of belief? And so we come to find out here in chapter 7 that they don't believe. They don't believe. There's some interest in being with him. I think they're enamored with what he's doing like the crowds are, but they don't yet believe in who he is. And if they don't believe in who he is, then how are they possibly going to understand his mission? And that's what I want you to think about is just because they were related to Jesus physically, just because they were part of his immediate family does not necessarily mean that they were a part of his mission. They didn't yet fully understand who he was and what he came to accomplish. And so they are just flat out misguided in the advice that they're giving him here. As we think more critically about how Jesus changes our perspective on family, let's read this passage in Matthew chapter 10. If you want to turn over there, please. We actually looked at the parallel in Luke's gospel last week, but we'll look at it in Matthew's account this morning. In Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 34. Jesus says this, and in the context in this chapter, it's the first time that Jesus has taken the 12 that he called and sends them out on their own 
to start preaching and teaching as he had been training them to do. And so he's preparing them for the kind of opposition that they're going to face as they do that. And then he says this in verse 34, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn, listen to what he says, a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. How can that be? Well, sometimes that's what faith does. Sometimes this is the opposition you face. Maybe some of you have experienced this in your own walk with Jesus. Maybe some of you know people who have, that when they determined to follow Jesus, they became enemies within their own household because the members of their household were opposed to their discipleship. And Jesus is preparing them for that reality. And then he goes on. He says this in verse 37. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. We talked last week in chapter 6 about the challenging nature of some of the things Jesus says. Does it get more challenging than this? If you love your parents more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love your children more than me, you're not worthy of me. Are you challenged by that idea? Look, if you're a parent, you understand this. Do you remember the first time you held your child in your arms? There's the anticipation in the pregnancy, right? We've got, you know, science on our side now. We get to look at those ultrasounds. They've got 3D ultrasounds I still go back and look at the first one we took of Paisley sometime and how much she looked like Robin's dad, which freaked me out. I'm like, why does my daughter look like my father-in-law? Okay, But I can remember the anticipation. I can remember talking to her in Robin's belly. I Just the excitement that builds up to that moment. But then when the doctor hands you that child for the first time, do you remember that experience? I know you do. You remember the emotions. What, what are you thinking in that moment? You're thinking, I don't know anything about you. Maybe you've got a name picked out. Maybe you don't even have that yet. I don't know what your personality is going to be like. I don't know what kind of things you're going to do in life. I don't know how we're going to get along, but I know this in that moment. What do you know? I know I love you more than anything I've ever loved in my life. I know the moment I touch your skin how much I love you and that there's nothing I wouldn't do for you. We know love by these experiences we have in this life. Experience that God has gifted us with. To be a parent is a gift. And yet he's saying, you know that kind of love? You know the strength of that love? There's a love even stronger than that. I'm asking you to love me more than you love your own children. That's a challenge. That's the kind of love he's inviting us into. And so it challenges the way that we think about family. Because we think that nothing is more important than family. No bond could ever be stronger than family. And no love exists stronger than the love that exists within the bonds of family. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm inviting you into a love even bigger than that. How can that be? In Matthew chapter 19, this is on the heels of the story, that famous story of the rich young ruler where this man appears to Jesus, say, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, you know, follow the commandments. And he says, well, I've done all these things from youth. And Jesus says, well, one thing you lack. Remember what it is? 
Sell everything you own and do what? Give it to the poor and follow me. And what was his reaction? He went away sad because he owned a lot of stuff. On the heels of that, Jesus has this conversation with his disciples. And I want to share this with you. So Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. I laugh every time I read that. I know this isn't a laughing matter, but there's this scene that pops into my head. Years ago on Saturday Night Live, they had this skit. I forgot who it was. Somebody was pretending to be Bill Gates, and he had built a new factory with giant needles and really tiny camels so that he could put the camels in the eye of the needle, right? So just to try to make it easier for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't, maybe that's not fair to Bill Gates. I don't know, but it's funny, okay? Jesus is using one of those illustrations he does, like the log in your eye versus the speck in your in your friend's eye, right? These, these absurd illustrations to drive the point home. It's easier to put a camel through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When his disciples heard this, they're greatly astonished, and they asked, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is possible, but with God, or with man this is impossible. With God all things are possible. And Peter answered him, so Peter's reflecting on all this, and he's saying, okay, you just challenged a man to give up everything and follow you, and he wouldn't do it because he wasn't willing to let go of his stuff. And he says, hold on a second, we've got 12 people here who did that. When you said, follow me, we dropped everything and we followed you, and Peter points that out. So Peter answered him in verse 27, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? This call that you've given to love you more than anything, more than any earthly bond that we have, those of us who have done it, is there a reward waiting for us? And I love this story because it gives Jesus every opportunity to rebuke Peter here like he does in some other instances, but he doesn't. Listen to his answer. Jesus says in verse 28, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone, so that was to the apostles, this is to everyone. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. This is another challenging teaching. How can he ask us to give up so much? And here's a reminder of how great the reward is. But it challenges the way that we think about family, that Jesus would take priority. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, Paul writes this, Anyone who does not provide for their own relatives, and especially for their own household, is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In the context, Paul is talking about widows that the church is trying to provide for, and he's talking about how do you determine whether a widow in the church should be provided for by the church. And he just gives a practical advice. If she's got family, tell the family to provide for her first. Let the church take care of widows who are widows indeed. And he makes this statement. If you've got family that's not willing to care for their own, they're worse than an unbeliever. And I bring up this passage just to say, Jesus is not calling us into a position of neglect. He's not saying neglect 
your families. Families are gifts from God. To be a father, to be a husband, to be a a mother or a wife or a, a, a sibling in any way, to be a child of your parent, these are all blessings. He's not calling us into a position of neglect. He's not saying neglect those responsibilities God has given you on earth. So then what is he calling us to do exactly? He's calling us to think about family in a different way. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, so a a crowd is pressed in on Jesus. It's hard to get to him. His mother and his brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. Now this is a no-brainer for most of us. Your mom shows up and she wants to talk to you. What do you do? You stop everything and you make room so you can talk to your mom. That's what I would do out of respect for my mother. But Jesus is giving us an opportunity here to think about how family dynamics change in the kingdom. This is not an act of disrespect. This is a teaching moment. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Like he forgot? No, that's not what he's talking about. I don't know who they are anymore. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to think carefully about relationships and how they fundamentally change in the kingdom. Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Suddenly those outside of his immediate family are the same as those who are inside his immediate family. And that's the kind of of family that we can experience in the kingdom. And I believe it's still a challenge for us to come to terms with this today. Because we still live in a world where the cult of family is strong. Even the things God gives us that are among our greatest blessings can turn into idols rather quickly. Family among them. When we have determined that our immediate family takes all priority ever over everything up to and including the work of the kingdom, we have misunderstood what God is calling us into. We don't neglect our immediate family, but we expand the boundaries of our concept of family. When we made the decision to come here last year, it was the most difficult decision we've ever made. Not because you guys were the most difficult people we've ever met. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying, okay? Oh, I don't want to go over there. No, we wanted to come here and work with you. We fell in love with you guys instantly. But we have a family in your Belinda. They were a family for 12 years. And I look back on my life and I think about the way God has blessed me with relationships in his kingdom. Do you know what I'm talking about? Some of you have been here for a long time. Some of you have been a part of other congregations. Do you know those bonds I'm talking about? Those bonds that you have with brothers and sisters in the kingdom. You know one of the criticisms the early Roman world had against the Jesus movement when it started was that they were incestuous because they liked to kiss their brothers and sisters. They didn't understand that. It wasn't romance. It wasn't incestuous. The idea, though, that there's bonds stronger than even biology, even genetics, That you guys are my brothers and sisters and a new kind of family that God has formed on our behalf and the blessing that comes with that. Poor Paisley has no idea what a family tree actually looks like. Because she's got 
like 50 grandmas and grandpas and about 200 aunts and uncles because everyone in the church is a grandma or a grandpa or an aunt or an uncle. Part of that's our fault. I think she gets it now. Like, okay, there are actually people I'm related to. But in her mind, and this is what we've done intentionally for her, is to break down those barriers that exist sometimes where family takes priority over everything. And so what what we do then is we end up building walls between us and those that we're actually invited into fellowship with. Yes, this is my family, and I'll deal with them for an hour a week, but then throughout the week, I prioritize immediate family over everything because that's what God has called me to do. Well, has he really? Is that really what God has called you to do? So think about this critically. In Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 14, if you turn over there with me. Ephesians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages. It talks about what God does for us that we can't do for ourselves. So let's think about immediate family. Think about blood family for a minute. Okay, this idea that family comes first in everything. Part of that is good and healthy and true. But if we're not careful, that can lead into the kind of thinking where I place family first and everyone else is an other There are those who are mine, they belong to me. And there are those who are others. And if we bifurcate the world in that manner, then we end up keeping people at arm's distance for fear that they might encroach on that which is mine. It's tribalism. And the early church was plagued with that kind of thinking. Because in that world, it was a very binary approach towards relationships. There were Israelites, those who belonged to the family of Abraham, and to them belonged what? The covenant and the promises. And then there was everyone else. Everyone else. And to the Israelites, it was very tempting to fall into this kind of mentality where we protect those who are our own, and we exclude everyone else. Now, to be fair to the Israelites, the world had pushed them into that kind of mentality, hadn't it? Absolutely. How would that ever be overcome in the church? In a kingdom where God is now calling those outside of the family of Abraham to become his children, how could those kinds of barriers ever be overcome? And this is what we read about in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14. For he himself, this is Christ Jesus, is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those of you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Now listen to what he says. Consequently, you are now no longer foreigners and strangers. Those of us who would count ourselves as Gentiles, we're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. So we are citizens now of the same, what, country, residing place? Now we have a kinship, right? We can make sense of all this. Because think about the communities that you belong in. Your neighbors are part of a community, and so you have a kinship with them, right? As a country, 
When we set ourselves against other countries that we might be at odds with, we have a kinship with one another. Patriotism drives us together because we're all united in one thing that makes us the same. We're Americans. We have kinship in that regard. But there's always an other on the other side. Someone that we are odds with. And so it becomes our tribe versus the rest. And Jesus is saying, or, or Paul is saying, through Jesus, all of that was done away with. The wall of hostility that existed was taken down, and he created in himself one new humanity. So that, yes, we're fellow citizens, but more than that, what does he say? We're not just citizens, but fellow, uh, excuse me, fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his, what? Household. We are part of the family of God. We sing songs about it. We do lip service to it. But do we act as a true family? Are the people in this room the same as your blood relatives? Or are they still others in some regard? If we are going to become one in family, first of all, it's made possible by Christ. We're never going to accomplish this on our own. But it does take effort on our behalf that those walls that he tore down, we keep torn down. If I want to be family with you, I have to, first of all, spend time with you. And it takes more than an hour a week. I've been separated from my parents and a lot of our siblings for the 12 years that we've been in California. But I don't only see them when we get together. We FaceTime. We talk. We keep those bonds alive because they're important to us. Do we put the same effort into the relationships that we have in this family? Are you purposely carving out time to spend with your Christian family? Are you sharing table space with these people? Are you worshiping alongside these people? Are you investing yourselves in their lives? We've got a, a number of wonderful children in this congregation. Do you know them by name? Do you know what they're interested in? Some of you know your role as grandparents, especially in Southern California. Number one, first and foremost, if you're a grandparent, your number one job is to go to the sports that your grandkids are involved in, right? Job number one, and you will never be forgiven if you don't do that, right? But listen, those of you who are grandparents here, do you know the children in this congregation, you're not physically related to, but in Christ, our family, do you know them by name? Do you know their interests? Have you ever sought out time with them? Have you asked their parents, hey, I know, I know your child's in soccer. Do they have a game sometime I could go watch and be a part of? We invest in family. Are you investing in this family? Jesus causes us to rethink the boundaries of family. Not neglect them, but to expand them. Listen, when God called Abraham and his family, called Abraham to leave his immediate family behind and to go into a different place so that God could bless him, start his own family, turn him into a great nation. But what was the purpose of all of that? So that through Abraham's immediate family, what would happen to the rest of the earth? All the nations of the earth would what? Be blessed. All I'm suggesting to you this morning is that you think along those lines that your immediate family, God has a purpose for. And the purpose is to bless the families of the earth around you. That you are called to be a blessing. Your family, your, your blood relatives, your immediate family is an extension of the kingdom of God. Sometimes we take those things that are most precious to us 
and we hide them, and we hoard them, and we protect them at all costs. And the kingdom asks of us to do the opposite, to open it up, not lock it away, but to open it up. Extend the boundaries of your family. Extend your thinking. Be challenged by the way Jesus thinks about family and allow your concept of family to expand because we can call ourselves a family, but it's another thing entirely to live as a family. Jesus is inviting you into a different perspective on family. And I just want to remind you how John starts his gospel. The gospel does not start... Every biography, every great biography written about a famous person starts with what? How they were raised. Let me tell you about their family and what it was like because it's formational, right? But as John gives us a biography of Jesus the Christ, he doesn't start with his physical family. He starts with this concept of family. Yet to all who did receive him, he talks about how Jesus was sent to his own and his own didn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. I am related to you, not because we share the same DNA, but through the blood of our Savior, we have all been adopted into the same family. Would you allow yourself to be challenged by that concept and think about family in broader terms than maybe you have before? Quickly, a few, a few other things along these lines. Thinking about Jesus' brothers. Okay, at this point in time, they do not believe in Jesus. And they're clearly misunderstanding what it is he wants to accomplish. But one of my favorite things about the story of the movement that began about Jesus, is these brothers who did not believe in him, and let's be honest, of all the people in the world that you could convince of your lofty place in life, who are going to be the most difficult? Your siblings, right? Remember the story of Joseph when he shares that dream of all of them bowing down to him? How, how did they like that story? Right? They threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery. That's how much they liked that story, right? But what happens later on to Jesus' brothers? We know two of them by name. James, or Jacob, and Jude. If you read the book of Acts, you see James was a prominent figure in the early church, especially in Jerusalem. We've got letters written by both of these men, and I just want to show you something simple. These men who did not believe in who their brother was would go on to write these things. This is how James starts his epistle. James, a servant of God and of the Lord. Jesus Christ. He does not say, my brother Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Did James come to conviction in the real identity of his brother? Yeah, he did. What about Jude? This is how he starts. Jude, a servant of Jesus the Christ and a brother of James. He'll call James his brother, but Jesus had been elevated. He's no longer brother Jesus. He's Christ Jesus. He had come to faith. Later on, he writes, he's, he's lamenting the false teaching that has impacted the church. He says this in verse 4, They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality, and they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. This is what his brother wrote about him. So those men who were brothers of Jesus and did not believe in who he was yet came to faith in him. What on earth could account for that? You tell me, what could account for that? How could you convince your siblings that you are 
the only sovereign Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. There's only one thing that can account for that. Only one. It's the resurrection. It's the resurrection. It's the only thing that can account for that. There's no way on earth that Jesus could have convinced his brothers in his real identity apart from the resurrection. And it's the very thing that convinces us of his identity today. I just want to share that thought with you. Okay, so quickly, almost out of time here. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. He's addressing his brothers now. Their idea that he should go into Jerusalem and make a big public spectacle because he needs a bigger following. He says, therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. Like I said, he's in control of the timeline. I'll do things the way I'm going to do them. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you. Why could it not hate them? Because they were still thinking like the world thinks. They were still part of the world at this point in time. They've done nothing to put themselves at odds with the world. Jesus, on the other hand, is making enemies. They want to kill him. Why? This is what he says. But it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival because my time is not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. So quickly, I just want to share one difficulty in this story with you before we lead up to what we're going to talk about next week. It's this. Jesus is very clear with his brothers. I'm not going to the festival. You go up. My time has not yet come. Okay, there's the end of that discussion. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also. Oh, now, people have a lot of trouble with this passage, okay? Jesus told his brothers, I'm not going, and yet what does he do? He goes anyway, right? So most commonly, people will come up with one of two conclusions about this. Okay, number one, Jesus lied. Number two, John was confused and made a mistake. Okay, Think about this critically for a minute. Okay. John writes this gospel for one very clear purpose. At the end of chapter 20, what does he say? I wrote these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. This is a carefully crafted biography meant to convince you in the identity of Jesus that he is the Son of God and that you might believe in that fact. So with all the effort John put into this, and I'm just... Not even talking about the inspiration behind this. Just John is a person. All the effort he puts into carefully crafting this story to get you to believe in Jesus. Do you think he's going to make a mistake? And oh yeah, I painted Jesus as a, a liar here. No, of course not. I think the, the easiest way to understand this text is first to understand that John did not see a problem with this. John did not have a problem with what Jesus did. He doesn't see a conflict here. If he did, he either would have edited it out or made it sound easier than it does. So something about the way we read this story is what gives us trouble. Was Jesus lying or did John make a mistake? No, so what's happening here? I think the key is the difference between what Jesus wants to accomplish and what his brothers are trying to get him to do. He is not going to do what his brothers want him to do because it's not in alignment with his purpose. The reason it's not in alignment with his purpose is because they're still worldly. They don't believe in who he is. And so he's simply making the statement, I'm going to do things the way I want to do them. And the way I want to do them is I'm going to go up privately. And then he's going to make a public stance when the time is right according to his timeline, not theirs. So he went, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Remember, they're looking to trap him somehow. And among the crowds, there was a widespread whispering about him, and some said, he's a good man. So people are starting to struggle with the identity of Jesus. And John is crafting this narrative very carefully to put us in their shoes. 
He wants us to be asking the same questions. Who is he? These are some of the conclusions. He is a good man. Have you at least come that far in your journey with Jesus? Do you understand he is a good man? You see the things he do, the, does, the way he interacts with people. How could you conclude anything other than he's a good man? But I've known some good men in my life. I don't worship any of them. What made Jesus different than other good men? Some were saying he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. He's a false teacher. But no one would say anything publicly about him because they were afraid of the leaders. And so that sets us up for what we're going to talk about in the text next week. John walks us through the rest of John chapter 7, and we find all of these different people asking all these questions about who Jesus is, and on top of all of it is this overwhelming fear of being on the wrong side because you do not want to find yourself in opposition to the Jewish leaders. And so that's the drama that's going to unfold in the rest of the chapter. So I encourage you to read ahead and come back next week prepared to talk about the rest of John chapter 7. How can we serve you this morning if you are a part of the family? There's nothing we wouldn't do for you. And if, not, if you're not yet a part of the family, there's nothing we wouldn't do to convince you to be a part of God's family. He gives the right to be called children of God. That's the invitation offered by your Savior, to become a child through the sacrifice that he made on your behalf. You think about these familiar relationships and the way that God uses them to his advantage to get us to think more critically about him and his nature. Is there anything you wouldn't do for your child? And yet God the Father sacrifices the one and only Son on behalf of us. What does that say about how much he values us and how much he wants us to be in relationship with him? I'm inviting you this morning on behalf of your Savior to become a part of that family. If you haven't already and you don't want to know what that's about, what that looks like, what you need to do, how you should respond, won't you give us the opportunity this morning to study with you and to encourage you. If there's anything else you need, we're here to serve. Why don't we stand, let's sing this last song together. If we can serve you in any capacity, come forward and let me know. Let's stand and sing. His enemies will run for sure. His enemies will run for sure. The church will stand, she will endure. The church will stand, she will endure. He holds the keys of life, our Lord. Death has no sting, no final word. Our God is a God who saves. Our God is a God who Says, let God arise, let God arise. Our God reigns now and forever, He reigns now and forever. Arise, let God arise. Our God reigns now and forever, He reigns now and forever. Our God. God who saves, our God is a God who saves, our God is a God who saves, our God is a God who saves, the God arise, 
praise. 